Good evening to all of you, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it has been at least a good five days since I was on the air last with all of you, and I have missed being on the air, but at the same time, I felt it was good to give all of you time to get caught up from what I had done recently from this uh, previous uh, podcast series that um, that we had uh, done through 11 episodes of uh, Season 15, um, The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley by Michael Schumacher. Well, many of you all are wanting to know where we're going to go next on our journey. After all, um, I remember when I was on the air last, I had mentioned how the dream itself never dies and that the journey still keeps going um, onward regardless of the um, regardless of what direction the time machine takes us in terms of a century so I've decided that our time machine will take us to the 18th century and we are um, going to be at the um, we're going to be discussing about the uh, American Revolution now I know I have discussed uh, the American Revolution in some other podcasts ranging from the uh, Boston Massacre to um, signing their lives away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. We've talked about um, the founding martyr, the life and um, death of uh, Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's forgotten hero. We've talked about uh, John Ollers, the Swamp Fox, how Francis Marion saved the American Revolution, So I'm sure many of you all are wondering, well, what else could there possibly be out there that has not been discussed about the American Revolution? Well, I know of something that that has been mentioned in textbooks, and it has been mentioned in, you know, documentaries perhaps on television. We've learned about it in museums. But I know this is uh, something that I haven't really learned much about until I read uh, Harlow Giles Unger's book, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. So our next um, podcast series will focus on Harlow Giles Unger's American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. Well, you know, when I think of tea parties, I usually think of uh, fancy get-togethers for uh, women whom are dressed in their fine attire, having what I would call finger-style foods, or what we call hors d'oeuvres to go with um, tea. I myself like to drink tea. Um, I usually drink it with uh, dessert. But I do know this, that in the um, 1770s, tea in America... I guess it's fair to say that tea was a beverage that was of love and hate. So we're going to uh, figure out why is it that tea was so unpopular, even though it may not have been 100% unpopular, but why was there such um, opposition towards the tea? Well, the best way to answer that uh, question would be um, by listening to the prologue that I will um, be getting ready to discuss with all of you, um, my Ardent 101 um, podcast listeners, regardless of whether you live in the United States or elsewhere around the world. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to listen to the prologue. The prologue that I um, wrote to um, that will help all of you 
get a better understanding of what we will be trying to learn with regards to the Boston Tea Party and why it was uh, the Boston Tea Party movement and why it played such an important role in sparking a revolution. When people in general hear the phrase American Revolution, their first thoughts center around April 19, 1775, the battles of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, the day for which shots were fired and heard around the world, to July 4, 1776, the day for which the Continental Congress voted unanimously in approving official separation from the mother country. Mother country folks being England. You know, if I'm not mistaken, didn't we try to extend that olive branch petition that had been instituted by uh, Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania? Yes, that olive branch petition was a last resort as a means of trying to come up with some form of resolution that would help rekindle um, the existing relations between the mother country and her subjects. Well, we did send that olive branch petition to King George III. What did King George III do? He, he refused to look at it. He was so mad and hellbent with his subjects, meaning the 13 colonies, that he went as far as calling them, or he probably had been calling them this for the last 10 years. He had referred to them as ungrateful subjects. So... Yes, despite uh, sending that olive branch petition, sadly, it was not enough for um, Parliament and the Crown to come to some form of um, meaningful reconciliation with her subjects. America's quest for independence from England took many twists and turns as the road to revolution impacted all individuals and families, regardless of where they stood in the greater social or rather, I should say, in the greater societal class hierarchy. You know, it's easy to think, well, I'd like to have been a patriot. Well, remember this, folks. You could be a patriot, but what about the rest of your family? Is it fair to say that you could have a brother, a parent, or let alone both parents be the opposite, loyalists? Is it fair to say that regardless of where you stood loyalty-wise, that you could be disowned by family, not just by a family member, but by the family as a whole. Perhaps so. Edmund Randolph, who would go on to become a governor of Virginia, was an ardent patriot. And his uncle was Peyton Randolph, who was a prominent, um, not just a prominent fellow of his community, but, a, but would be the speaker of the House of Burgesses, Virginia's House of Burgesses, Peyton Randolph, played um, a prominent role in Philadelphia by being the um, chairman of the um, Second Continental Congress. And sadly, his untimely death in 1775 um, resulted in uh, John Hancock of Massachusetts becoming the new um, chairman of the uh, Continental Congress. But what but as for Edmund Randolph, yes, his uncle, being Mr. Peyton Randolph, was a prominent patriot. But Edmund's parents disowned him, and they went to England never to return. Sadly for Edmund Randolph, he never saw his parents again. So that's just an example right there, folks, of how loyalties, even amongst the most well-to-do, in this case with the Virginia gentry, 
could literally tear families apart, not just for the in the present state, but it, but for the future. So, yes, America's quest for independence did from England did take many twists and turns, because the road to revolution did impact all individuals and families, regardless of where they stood in the greater societal class hierarchy. Wealth alone could easily distinguish what a man himself brought to others like money, personal business connections, to land property holdings. You know, look at George Washington. When he married Martha Dandridge Custis, he wasn't just marrying her because of what her for who she was in terms of a Custis. You know, the Custises were a powerful family in Virginia. But Martha Dandridge Custis was the wealthiest woman in Virginia. She inherited her fortune from her late husband, being her first husband of Daniel Park Custis. And when George Washington married Martha, he, in, he inherited not just the land, but his status rose even higher into Virginia society. So, yes, wealth alone can bring you a lot of great access not just to having money, but the personal business connections, whether you are of a plantation economy or a mercantile economy to the north in New England. Wealth alone can bring all kinds of um, extraordinary uh, possibilities. And then if you have vast amounts of land, money and land go hand in hand. However, despite all these advantages, you know, with uh, connections based upon your status in the uh, greater societal class hierarchy, if you are of the uh, landed gentry. Loyalties, however, however, when it came to loyalties and where people's attitudes stood behind independence, this movement more often than not broke apart family relations, as I mentioned earlier with Edmund Randolph's family. How about letting alone just neighbors turning against one another. This often was the case in South Carolina, for example, where in South Carolina, many of y'all who were with me when we did uh, Fran uh, John Oller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution, families left and right, uh, not just families, but neighbors left and right turned on one another, all in the name of loyalties, even for the slightest mishaps. But that's what happens when you have a society that could be unstable in time of war. When you don't know who you want to side with, loyalties can uh, splinter in an in a, in a instant um, moment. So if it's bad enough where family relations breaking apart to neighbors turning against one another, how about many being forced into exile? Those who were loyal to the crown folks, where did they end up going? They didn't stay at their native homeland of colonial America. Many in Boston, for example, fled to Halifax, Nova Scotia. They went north to the border into Canada. Many went as far south as the Caribbean. Others went to England. Matter of fact, there were a handful of Randolphs who went to England like Edmund Randolph's parents. Even some of Thomas Jefferson's family. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson's mother was a Randolph, so he, is, he Jefferson himself is connected to the Randolphs. So he had um, extended family, being that of the Randolphs, go to England to live out the rest of their lives. 
And I think it's fair to say that those who uh, went into exile, their lives were never the same. Nobody's life was ever the same, even before shots were heard around the world and after the war ended. War has a way of tearing people's lives apart that are never the same, not just from a um, from an emotional standpoint, but from um, you know war. Yes, war has a way of tearing people apart from an emotional standpoint, but also. Um, but when war breaks out, there's never really, it's never, it's, it's fair to say that there's never any going back to what normalcy was prior to shots being fired around the world. So the year 1773 being just two years shy of when shots were fired at Lexington and Concord brought a new wave of unrest to, to the people of Massachusetts, most notably in Boston, where America's movement behind separation from England originated. The wave of unrest reached its boiling point on Thursday, December 16, 1773, when nearly seven dozen men, seven, nearly seven dozen folks, what number makes a dozen? Twelve. So if, in fact, nearly seven dozen men dumped 10,000 pounds of tea into Boston Harbor, that means that roughly 84 men, at best, made their way onto three ships and dumped 10,000 pounds of tea into Boston Harbor, which historians now know, based upon Harlow Giles Unger's findings, that that would be the equivalent of a million dollars in lost revenue in today's time. The men who dumped roughly 10,000 pounds of tea did, in fact, help, help spark another element of extreme radicalism behind the movement for independence, which became known as the Boston Tea Party. But, uh, but ironically, the actions taken on December 16, 1773 weren't isolated incidents. Parliament already had created tensions with her subjects, being the 13 colonies in America, most notably beginning in 1765 with the Stamp Act, followed in 1767 with the Townshend duties, where in certain, um, where certain legislation got enacted imposing taxes on all legal documents, which got added with British stamps, most notably the Stamp Act. Think about it, with the Stamp Act folks all Paper documents coming over to America also came with an attachment of stamps where the stamps had to be placed on the paper documents. And then in order for the um, in order for the documents to be valid, the stamps had to be on there. But there was a tax that went along with those stamps, anything paper. So think about it. if you were getting married in the colonies, <laughs> what do you need to have? You need to not just so much have a paper document proving that Mr. and Mrs. Smith got married, but the stamp on there is what officially approves of the marriage. Well, the Stamp Act uh, obviously was not uh, favorable by many uh, people, and I'll get to that part again here in a moment. Then we take the Townshend duties from 1767, which focused on taxing items like lead, paper, paint, glass, and most notably, tea. 
Parliament in 1766 repealed the Stamp Act as it was met with fierce opposition amongst her subjects in America, and not long after 1767, Parliament had, rep had repealed every taxable item on the Townshend Act with exception of one commodity, tea. There must be something about the tea that is unique that Parliament is so desperately clinging on to that they hope will get that they hope will will make uh, some form of sense to her subjects and making her subjects realize that something has to be done about the tea in order for any kind of revenue to be generated. Not long before December 16, 1773, something else unraveled along Boston's wharves. And what are wharves, folks? They are the um, shipping docks where goods are coming into the port of Boston and leaving out of the port. So, again, not long before December 16, 1773, something else unraveled along Boston's wharves, sending shockwaves from a good number of Boston's people. Monday, November 29, 1773, many, if not all, of Boston is already at work. But most Bostonians spot notices on fence posts to trees, advising everyone that the inevitable has now arrived. And what has arrived, folks? The dreaded tea. Multiple church bells rung to where people from all over Boston closed their shops and went straight to Faneuil Hall, where many Bostonians called for government reform as they now felt betrayed by Parliament, whom in their eyes was no longer looking after her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies. So is it fair to say that the people of Boston are also trying to speak out for all the other colonies whom they feel should uh, have some form of empathy and compassion as well? Absolutely. Well, many of us have been left to ask ourselves why the presence of tea in Boston alone created such an uproar. It's obvious to say that there wasn't just one answer alone behind why T's presence was so unwelcoming. For starters, most men rarely consumed tea, as they preferred drinking ale. You know, another word for ale, folks, is beer. They also, most men preferred to drink rum. Another word for rum is liquor. Secondly, Tea itself was viewed as a social beverage. Okay? How can you best define tea as being a social beverage? Is it fair to say that tea is best served when people are not doing much around their house? Yes. Perhaps it's fair to say that tea ought to be consumed by those who chose to remain idle, inactive not having enough tasks before them to complete. Is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't believe so. But at the same time, if you are not, if you don't want to drink beer or drink rum, there has to be something else you can drink. After all, drinking water is not safe. People refrain from drinking water because, you know, they really haven't been able to 
to uh, find a way to go about um, at that point in time to go about ensuring that the water itself is safe due to potential contamination from from a whole host of um, widespread sources. So casual drinking of beverages in a social setting without, how do I say it? The tea, tea itself was viewed as a social beverage consumed by those who chose to remain idle, as I said a moment ago, inactive, not having enough tasks before them to complete. The casual drinking of beverages in a social setting was preferred by some people as a means of um, as a means of being polite without engaging in um, manners deemed detrimental to their own, say, personal image. Is it fair to say that perhaps um, that women were the ones who consumed more tea than men? I'm not saying that men didn't consume tea, but it's fair to say that women, by far and wide, were more of your um, tea consumers at this time. After all, um, I do. I can tell you this: that uh, it was one thing for a woman to run a tavern, and the only times that um, a woman really did run a tavern was when her husband, who had been the head tavern keeper, died. And when the husband died, the woman, um, if the wife rather, I should say, if she has children, regardless of whether she has children or not, she has to have some form of employment. So. The, um, the state would often see to it that the wife would be the uh, primary inheritor of the tavern. The last thing a woman would not want to uh, do to herself is to go to a tavern by herself and start drinking. For one, it was um, not considered etiquette, and two, uh, if a woman had done that, she had at that time she would have been seen as um, someone that was not of um, proper um, class. There again, it's all about being in line and knowing what's appropriate to not appropriate to be doing. But by around 1773, close to one-third of America's population did, in fact, consume nearly two cups of tea a day. And at the same time, folks, Parliament is doing something um, in the eyes of um, many, most notably the New Englanders. Parliament is pressing for legislation geared towards implementing a three penny per pound tax on British tea. Why did Parliament see it necessary to institute a three penny per pound tax on British tea? I will talk more about this in another podcast, but given that this is a prologue and an introduction, we do need to have some understanding in order to know why the events that led up to December 16th, 1773, did in fact happen. So this means we've got to do a little bit of um, tracing backwards to understand what had happened in the present. So, why did Parliament see it necessary to institute a three-penny-per-pound tax on British tea? Her partner, or rather business trading partner, being the British East India Company, was struggling to survive financially and needed a way out but by doing so at a means of clamping down on all smuggled tea coming into America from the Netherlands, a.k.a. Dutch tea. And by 1773, folks, between 80 to 86% of all tea in America 
that had come over into America through her ports like Boston, Philadelphia, New York, it's probably fair to say even Charleston, South Carolina, about 80 to 86% of all tea in America was smuggled Dutch tea. So is it fair to say that the colonists are, are bending the rules on their side? Absolutely. They want to, um, they, they don't mind paying for tea, but they'd rather do it at a much cheaper price than what Parliament wants to do. The British government faced more, rather I should say Parliament itself, faced more than one million pounds in debts. These debts arose from the French and Indian War. Parliament is in dire need of collecting revenue from all from all angles. I mean, is it fair to say they were desperate enough to collect revenue from the Stamp Act? Were they desperate to collect revenue from the Townshend duties? Yep, and they failed both times, except with the Townshend duties, there's one thing that's still lingering, the tea, the tax on the tea. But it's not so much Parliament needing to collect revenue from the colonists. They also need revenue from the East India Company, since that was her business partner, unlike the Dutch, whom they had no connections with whatsoever in terms of business relations. Remember, folks, who are the 13 subjects doing business with? They're, they're supposed to be doing business with England. They can't enter into contracts with France and Spain. After all, if they do that, then, then the British can view that as treasonous. They could... They could they could get the sense that a handful of colonies out of 13 are actually selling secrets about the British to the French or the Spanish. So the British know that the only way they can get a true they can get a true hold on this is to this situation is to raise taxes, even if it means not giving the colonists proper consent. But it also means that they're going to do things behind the colonists' back that are going to make the colonists want to do something else in return. And, and in the case of the tea, that means um, getting tea smuggled in at a cheaper price through the Netherlands. And again, I will talk more about the British East India Company in another podcast. But that is the, um, that is the basic um, 101 um, outline outline of what to expect uh, going forward. Although tea itself did have advantages from a medicinal standpoint in regards to such uh, circumstances like fighting off headaches to curing colds and fevers, most of Boston's merchants who fell under second and third tier status preferred smuggled Dutch tea as it was cheaper to obtain meaning the duties. And what are duties, folks? I'm not talking about tasks that we need to perform before day's end, but in this case, duties, a.k.a. taxes. The duties on smuggled tea were much less. In other words, it was cheaper to buy versus tea from the East India Company, which had a higher tax. 
and who's benefiting from the higher tax. The colonists won't. Only Parliament will. And it will do so at a price without the consent of the colonists. The direct consent. Well, in the months after Parliament had passed the Tea Act on May 10th, 1773, Boston's mid- to lower-tier-level merchants took up their opposition against legislation by assembling waterfront workers into teams, a.k.a. groups, who made their voices known along with engaging in acts of violent extremism. And this extremism, folks, involved burning homes to businesses of those loyal to the crown whom supported the Tea Act. I tell you, it's one thing to voice opposition towards legislation, but believe it or not, folks, the unruly crowd was not what we think of as innocent people whom, whom were um, boo-hooing and and were crying up a storm and saying that nobody was looking after them. Well, they may have had their right to say that, that Parliament betrayed them, but, this un, but these unruly crowds, a.k.a. the mob, they knew what they were doing when they were voicing their opposition. They weren't, they weren't doing what's called the right to um, assemble peacefully in a nonviolent manner. They went to the extreme, and you could say it was probably a bit both extreme left and right. And what I mean by extreme left, how about going after buildings, setting buildings on fire, people's property being destroyed, vandalized. To the extreme right, how about tarring and feathering people of the opposition? But tarring and feathering, folks, was not something confined to just one group. The patriots, those who were patriot forces, could tar and feather a loyalist, all in the name of his loyalties. What did loyalists do in return? They did the same thing to the patriots. They tarred and feathered them. Perhaps this tarring and feathering is like the equivalent of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You hurt us by destroying our property. We'll find a way to get back at you by tarring and feathering you and humiliating you in a broad public setting where scores of people are watching you left and right. So, no matter whose home or business was destroyed regardless of loyalty. And yes, the mob, being the unruly crowd, did resort to numerous acts of violent extremism in the case of burning homes and businesses of those loyal to the crown. Nobody was immune. The insurmountable unrest in Boston with regards to tax on tea was just another example in the eyes of Boston's patriots as to how far Parliament had abused its authority. The presence of tea alone on British ships in Boston's harbor was bad enough. But its long-term rippling effects... Its long-term rippling impacts, rather, I should say, associated with the three-penny-per-pound tax drove scores of men whom disguised themselves as Mohawk Indians by seizing the ships and dumping tea chests into the water, all in the name of avoiding not having to pay a new tax on tea imposed by Parliament herself without consent, without, maybe I should say, direct consent from her subjects below. Her subjects below, that is Parliament's subjects below, the 13 colonies. 
yeah, it's one thing to have the presence of tea alone on these ships, but it's the long-term effects. What what do the um, unruly what does the unruly crowd not want to have happen to the tea folks? They don't want the tea being unloaded. They don't want the tea not just being unloaded, but getting but getting placed in people's um, warehouses because that because in their eyes it's a, it's a form of aggression it's a form of um, improper representation it's a form of being subjected to do something against your own will without giving proper consent is it fair to say in the eyes of parliament that the people of massachusetts in their eyes have become nothing more than people who live in the i me myself world perhaps so where, what do I think of it as? I, I think it's a little bit of both. There is I, me, myself, and then there is us, we, ourselves. But, but it's also 50-50. The actions on the evening of December 16, 1773 in Boston Harbor would also be felt in other port cities from New York, Philadelphia to Charleston, South Carolina, where people in large numbers came out and dumped tea chests to burning tea ships, all in the name of opposition towards the Tea Act. What took place in Boston's harbor late 1773 was nothing isolated, but in order to better understand what led up to those events would require going back years before any notion of separation from England crossed her subjects' thoughts. Did you hear that, folks? We're going we're gonna to have to go back um, quite some period of time before, well before um, any of uh, Parliament's subjects ever even thought of the notion of separation. Is it possible that we might have to go back 30 years? Is it possible maybe 40 it could be either one, but the bottom line is we will have to go back some years before to really understand how the events that led up to December 16, 1773 were seen as the equivalent of the straw that uh, you know broke the camel's back. Thomas Hutchinson, uh, governor of Massachusetts, and he was governor of Massachusetts for uh, quite a period of time, and his name is going to be mentioned quite a bit. He said the following about people and how they are governed. I'm not sure if he really was referring to Massachusetts. It is possible that he probably very well was referring to Massachusetts. However, he might have also been saying this in general about all of colonial America. After all, there are many in colonial America outside of Massachusetts by, seven, by late 1773 who are also feeling the rippling effects, not just from, from um, irrelevant pieces of legislation like the Stamp Act to the Townshend duties, but, they are, but their, li their daily lives have been um, greatly impacted by Parliament's um, ill-advised actions and treatment towards the colonists as a whole. I would say by 1773, Virginia is leaning towards wanting to separate from England. However, Virginia being the largest of the 13 colonies, not only has the most to gain, but the most to lose. 
and if any of the other colonies wanted to separate from England, they have to go through Virginia. I do know that one piece of legislation had a profound impact on um, most notably the landed gentry in Virginia. It was called the Quebec Act of 1773, enacted by Parliament. Basically, Parliament uh, deprived um, land holdings that they had uh, promised such men like George Washington, who owned well over 100,000 acres of land. He, you know, Washington had land holdings in what we now know as present-day West Virginia, Ohio, uh, what we now know as areas right around present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that his uh, land holdings um, were, um, what do you call it, uh, his land holdings stretched into. But basically, the Quebec Act pretty much eliminated um, the, the gentry's rights to um, rightful land ownership that was uh, promised to them after the French and Indian War ended. And with that Proclamation Act of 1763, it pretty much prohibited all westward expansion west of the Appalachian Mountains. So George Washington obviously feels very betrayed by this, and so the Quebec Act was pretty much, it might be fair to say for George Washington, the Quebec Act of 1773 might have been the final straw that broke the camel's back for him. But as for Thomas Hutchinson, the governor of Massachusetts, he said the following about people and how they are governed. And again, this would be for all of colonial America. So listen very carefully. This is in quotes. There is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed. I'll repeat that again. There is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed. If one were to ask me how could you best uh, phrase this quote without having to go into like a five-page report on it, how could you best phrase it? It's one thing to disagree on something. In other words, you don't have to agree with everything that's said. It's one thing to disagree. Is it fair to say that you should learn how to um, learn how to disagree without being disagreeable? In other words, you may not have to like what John Smith says, but should you get into John Smith's face and create an uproar to the point where you where it looks pretty imminent to where the the bridge itself has been burnt? Perhaps not. So yes, it's one thing to disagree on something, but how people within a greater community channel their emotions will either make or break whatever existing bonds still lie intact between monarch and her subjects. So the way I phrased this was based upon the time in which it was said and the current state of relations between the 13 colonies and her sub and her um ruler above, King George III. So, yes, there are many in, in, the, um, in colonial America who are not happy with what Parliament is doing on numerous fronts. But in the eyes of Parliament and the Crown and men like Thomas Hutchinson, it's fair to say that people's, but it's fair to say that how people within the greater community channel their emotions that will either make or break whatever existing bonds still lie intact between monarch and her subjects. So in other words, it really could only be a matter of time before this marriage 
will no longer uh, that this marriage will no longer be valid. It will no longer be a relevant uh, relationship that can be salvageable. And not to get ahead, but when I think of this now, I think of you know yes, John Dickinson with the, not just so much with the Olive Branch petition, but the way Dickinson described the marriage between the colonists, the 13 colonies, and the crown was that it was like an apron. The, the back of the apron, you know, you tie the back of the apron, you have a knot. The knot is the marriage between the colonies and the crown. Once that knot becomes untied, it becomes very hard to retie what you had in the past that was still salvageable once you've untied the knot and you have and you have um, demanded your separation from your subject above just know that you are on your own and that any means of the mother country wanting to invite you back in to her inner circle are no longer is no longer valid so it's fair to say that even before 1776 evolves, not just 1776, but it's fair to say that even three years before 1776, that that the that the relationship between England and her subjects, it's on a it's on borrowed time, but it's fair to say that this knot. And the back of the apron is gradually coming apart. And in a few short years, it will come apart altogether to where it will never be able to get tied back to what it once was before. So yes, I, I'll say it, I said it already and I'll say it again. There is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed as what Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson said. And yes, it's one thing to disagree on something, but how people within a greater community channel their emotions will either make or break whatever existing bonds still lie intact between monarch and her subjects. This is the story before us, folks, as we will discover what really triggered the events leading up to December 16, 1773. But doing so requires going further into Massachusetts's past to understand why people's actions went to major extremes prior to the first shots fired around the world. Well, I look forward to um, being on the air again next time with you all, and I look forward to, um, to discussing many episodes of American Tempest and how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. But let's keep in mind that this was no fancy tea party. This was a tea party that had been in the works for some time. After all, this was a tea party where men took it upon themselves to see to it that a commodity that was not, um, that a beverage that wasn't totally 100% popular not be allowed off the wharves of Boston. Not just so much not being allowed off the wharves, but allowed onto the premises and fear that it would represent a, another sign of um, improper consent. In other words, to tax a group of subjects who never even requested to be taxed for something that they did not have a say or vote on.
Well, thank you again for listening. I hope that you all found this uh, prologue to be beneficial. I am sure that most of you all, well, while most of you all probably knew information about the Boston Tea Party, I hope that as we progress further on that all of you will come away learning more than you did before. I can tell you right now that I did myself, but I also feel that I have an obligation to you all, my fellow listeners, to share this story. After all, there are so many stories out there that we think we know, but then at the same time, we just when we think we knew those stories, we, we didn't know them perhaps 100%. Maybe it's our goal not to know 100%, but if we know 50% more than we did before, then we still come away with something even more valuable. Well, thank you again for listening. Uh, you all have a good rest of your day. And for some of you, wherever you may live in the world, it's already Tuesday. But regardless, stay safe, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. Take care, and God bless for now.